0: a larger network of churches, and a larger project of bringing the gospel to our community and to the world. And so it's appropriate for us every Sunday to uh, pause like this as we're about to in a moment and just pray together. I'm, I'm going to pray, and I just want to invite you as you listen. If this is, uh, the words here reflect your heart as a Christian and a follower of Christ, that you would just agree with them, that you would listen and in your own quiet way affirm that prayer. We will say amen afterwards because we are part of something much bigger. This morning, we're going to pray for our nation and some of the crazy things going on. We're going to pray for our world, particularly this morning, the nation of Egypt, because we pray for some of the places in the world where it's the hardest to be a Christian, Uh, and then pray for other churches and ourselves. So, will you join me, please? Father, we come before you as a people, as one people. The the members of this church, people called um, by you out of sin and death, and into salvation, a people with a hope and with a future because of you, not because of us, because of you. And we realize that in having saved us not only from our sins and from their eternal consequences, you have saved us into your family, and you have given us a hope and a future of being around your table for all eternity in heaven. God would look forward to that, but we're not there yet. And when we read the Bible, we read your word, we realize there's a reason we're not there yet, because you have given us a task to do, to be your ambassadors, to share in word and in deed the truth of the gospel so that others may come to faith in Christ and experience that healing. And so God, as we think of our nation, our headlines are always so dominated by evidences of the brokenness of sin all around us. There's been so much um, hype and activity uh, this past week in particular, really for many, many years now, regarding racism in our country. And politically, there's immigration debates and, and tensions run high. And so, Father, we want to intercede as a church, as your church, on behalf of our nation and pray that there would be great healing in this land from the divisions that we see all over our news feeds. Father God, we pray that there would be great unity amongst the things that divide us. And, and there is no better group of people who are able to display unity than your church because our identity is not defined by our ethnic background or our nation of origin or our political leanings. Our identity is defined by Christ. And so, Father God, whether we come this morning as uh, left-leaning or right-leaning people, whether we come as colored or non-colored people, whether we come from other nations or originally from this nation, we are gathered this morning as none of those things. We are gathered as your people, and we pray that there would be great unity that is experienced not only in our midst, but even in the way that we see other people around us. Even as we debate debatable things, Father God, would we be different in how we debate it, would there be a great unity because we see and love other people as made in your image. Father God, we pray that other people in our nation would experience that healing, and that they would not feel triumphant or repressed because of their background, but that they would feel freed because of the gospel. Make your name great, we pray in this way. And Father, as we think larger uh, beyond our own borders to the nation of Egypt this morning, there is such a division in that country from everything that we read, especially between those who are part of the Muslim majority and those who are not, many of them Christians, many of them Egyptian Christians, and they struggle. Uh, they face tremendous opposition, uh, particularly since political change there in 2013. It has become, from everything I read, much harder for Christians in Egypt to assemble without fear of bodily harm and particularly for those former Muslims those who have converted from Islam to Christianity face tremendous pressure to reconvert Father God we pray for their strength this morning uh, we love them we do not know them most of us by name but we know they are our brothers and sisters in Christ and we will spend eternity with them God I look forward to that But in the meantime, would you give Christian believers in Egypt the grace to walk the path before them and the courage to pay whatever price the gospel demands? For it is better to lose one's life than to waste it. So, Father, may they be a tremendous testimony for the gospel, and we pray that millions more Egyptian Muslims would find the freedom of the gospel in Christ and that your name would be made great in that nation. Father, I also want to pray for the other churches in our community, thinking especially this morning um, with the need for, for unity and the, the evidences of, of racism and tension that we see in our country. I pray especially for University Park uh, Church this morning in St. John's and Pastor Chad over there, a good friend. Father, we know that that is a a congregation in one of the more ethnically diverse parts of Portland and North Portland has undergone a lot of changes lately and there are very, very real and difficult tensions. I pray for Chad and for University Park. I pray that they would be a tremendous light of the gospel, that all people would find welcome there and would find a home there because the identity is different. It is in Christ first. And we pray that you would change people's lives in North Portland through the ministry of that church. God bless them this morning. And lastly, Father, I just want to pray for us. I pray that we would be, as individual members of this church, agents of gospel unity in our own city. That people who are different politically and ethnically would not only be welcomed here at Harvest, but that they would find a home here at Harvest. Because... Our identity is not rooted in our ethnic or our national or our political backgrounds. Our ultimate identity is rooted in the fact that you have saved us by your grace and we bring nothing to your table. But you have brought us to your table by your love and sacrifice. Jesus, we thank you for that. And we pray that that would be not only the truth that we believe, but the lived reality that we and other people in our city experience. I pray that you would swell the ranks of this church, not just with people in the seats, but with souls that are transformed by the gospel of grace. And that's a work that only you can do. So we invite you, Holy Spirit, this morning to do it starting with us and starting right now. And it is in the matchless name of Jesus, of which we just sang and which we now praise, All God's people said, Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. If you've got a Bible, I want to invite you to turn it to the book of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. We're going to continue the uh, series that we started last Sunday through this short uh, prophetic book. While you're turning there... um, I'm curious if any of us, I'm sure probably all of us have, had an experience where um, you get to see or hear yourself from an objective third-party point of view. Like maybe you heard a recording of your own voice. Anybody ever done that and been shocked? And like, that's not me. Like I don't sound like that stupid voice, you know, on that you know, answering machine tape or whatever it is. And then of course you realize, oh my gosh, yes I do. <laughs> and like everybody else hears that all the time, every now and then I'll like, um, you know, want to go back through and critique one of my own sermons, and so I go to our website, and I listen to the podcast, and I'm like, do you guys seriously hear that voice every Sunday? That guy sounds stupid, and you keep coming back, that's the grace of God, you know, (laughs) or maybe it's even worse if you've been a parent, uh, either currently or in the past, you've had that experience where the mirror isn't just a recording, maybe it's your own kid, anybody ever been there where like your, your child says something and you're like, hey, that's totally inappropriate language. Don't talk to your sister that way. Don't talk to your mother that way. And then you realize like, oh, wait, I talk that way. <laughs> and then you're like, well, it, but yeah, but when I say it, it doesn't sound that bad. <laughs> but then we hear it from them. And we're like, that's awful. I guess I do sound that bad. Not usually a very comfortable experience, is it? Um, when I was in college, I had a political science professor that um, would lecture, and it was a long class, so he'd lecture, and he had this this mannerism where the whole time that he would lecture, he would stand there, and he would move in a little square, um, kind of like I'm sort of doing now. It was just this, this pattern where it was like right front, left front, right back, left back, and he'd go on and on and on talking about political science, and he would do this for like an hour, like three days a week, and after a while, I'm just like, stop! chinese water torture i can't watch you anymore stop it you know and of course the guy had no idea i'm sure that he was even doing it i'm like somebody needs to get a video of him and show him so that he can think about it and just root your feet to the floor do something different you know it is so uncomfortable sometimes to see ourselves the way other people see us and no i don't want to see any videotapes of me preaching so just put your phones away okay it can be so uncomfortable to see us, ourselves, the way other people see us. That is exactly what God is trying to get us to do, though, in the book of Malachi. Uh, last week, Jordan kicked off this series for us, which I really appreciate, and he did a good job pointing out a couple of specific features, unique uh, aspects of this book. Uh, in the Old Testament, that sets it apart even from other prophetic books. One of those features is that the book of Malachi is built around six disputations, uh, they're called. It, it's sort of set up as a, almost like a stage play where you've got two characters, God on the one hand, and then God's people, the, the people to whom the book was originally directed and written, and they're sort of personified as one voice, and these two characters are having a series of six arguments Six disagreements, and, and we as the readers get to listen in from sort of a third-person perspective and hear God and his people argue with one another over who's doing the right thing and who's not. And one of the questions is, why would God build the book that way? I mean, no other prophetic book of the Bible is written that way, so why is this one written? And there's specific reasons for it, and I think the heart of the reason is actually what we just discussed. Uh, Malachi is a book in which God is trying to show his people Um, where they fall short, and and, and he's calling them to repentance, but he's really trying to show them what they look like from a third-person perspective. In other words, what they look like to him, because the truth is, God's people think they're doing largely fine, and they're not doing fine, and so God wants to show them, this is what you sound like, this is what you look like, and this sort of disputation structure does that. So when we read this book, the goal is that God obviously would be doing the same for us. That we as modern day Christians would see, hmm, what does my devotion to God really look and sound like? Not to me. Not to me. But to somebody else who's objectively looking at me. What does my devotion to God look like to God? That's the question. Now, because that's what the book is trying to get us to do, and, and that's how we should read it, um, it, is, it, it can be hard to hear at points. Because as we've said, when you see yourself from an objective, third-person sort of perspective, it's usually pretty uncomfortable. I, I, I find that I cut myself a lot more slack most of the time than I realize I am. And in a more objective point of view, says, dude, you're not measuring up. And, and that could be very uncomfortable to hear. And so consequently, when we look at books like Malachi it can feel sometimes like a book that's just beating us over the head and demanding that we do better, but there's actually great hope here, and so we want to get into this and let the word of God speak honestly, because that's how we do it here at Harvest. We simply let God's word lead us where he wants us to go, but I want to encourage you as we go through this, if, if you feel that God is sort of maybe flaying your own life open for exposure, know two things. First of all, he is exactly what he's trying to do no it's not comfortable but there is also great hope we'll see that really strongly next Sunday and the following Sunday but we'll get to it this morning as well so hang in there with me Um, one of the other things we pointed out about the book last week is that it's built in a very unusual structure these six disputations are are in three pairs number one and number six go together number two and number five go together and number three and number four go together why did God do the book that way I'll have some thoughts about that I'll share with you next Sunday so come back next Sunday. I only mention that now, because we need to get into the chapter, but I only mention that now just to say that those are the, we're going to look at two different passages of Malachi this morning, the second and the fifth arguments, and they come from two different parts of the book, and I just don't want that to be confusing. The reason we're looking at two parts is that these two are designed to go together, and you'll see that they're very similar. So here's kind of a quick look at where we're headed over the next uh, few minutes together. Uh, three simple points in the outline, we're going to spend a good chunk of the time on just looking at the two disputations. God is going to call his people to account for their failure to offer appropriate sacrifices in the first one, and then their failure to offer appropriate tithes and offerings in the second one, and you can already see how similar those are. They both deal with the people's formal uh, participation in uh, Old Testament worship. Uh, and then that's kind of focusing on the behavior like what are they doing where where is their lifestyle falling short but then we're also going to see that there's a root issue that God is also bringing out in the text and the root issue has to do with their heart here's what you guys are doing or failing to do but he also says this is what that shows about your heart and then lastly we're going to see at the end God's solution and participate together when we come to the communion table in, in in pursuing that solution as a church. The connection between the heart and the behavior is right in the middle of what the book of Malachi is all about. That's why we've titled this series From the Inside Out, because God wants to transform us from the inside out, from the heart to the behavior. But he often uses our behavior in the opposite direction to show us the heart first. And only when we are honest about how far our hearts fall short of God's Call for us? Are we open to receive the gospel of grace and be transformed then from the inside out? So that's where we're headed. Let's look at these two uh, disputations quickly. What does God call His people to account for? The first one takes place in chapter, uh, the end of chapter one, the beginning of chapter two. It's the lengthiest disputation. We're not going to read every verse of it this morning, but we're going to catch the heart of it. And it really boils down to this God calls His people to account. Um, for failing to honor him, for dishonoring him, by serving him their leftovers, so to speak. They were serving God leftovers, and he's specifically calling them out here for bringing um, inappropriate and kind of lame, both literally and metaphorically, sacrifices to the altar when they were coming to the temple to perform the Old Testament animal sacrifices. Let's read uh, chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. God says, "...a son honors his father and a servant his master." If then I'm a father, where's my honor? If I'm a master, where's my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise you, my name. So there's the dispute. God is saying to his people and specifically to the priests, you despise me. They're like, what? We're your people. What are you talking about? We don't despise you. And there goes the argument. God says, I'm going to show you how you despise me. You pollute my altar. They say, how have we done that? And Um, in verse 8, he spells it out. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Would he accept it and show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And so God is saying to them, you're not doing what you are supposed to be doing. You're not doing it right. Now, the background of this is that the Old Testament law, you can go back to the book of Leviticus, clear back toward the beginning of the Old Testament, uh, which was several hundred years in the past for these people, and read about the specific details that God commanded with regard to the animal sacrifices that the ancient Israelites were supposed to bring. Among those details are that they were only supposed to bring the very best animals from their flocks. Um, The young ones, the strong ones, the ones that were of greatest value, because that was a way to show God honor. And I'm going to offer that to God. Well, here was people many years later trying to follow the Old Testament law, but they were doing this half-heartedly. And By the way, it was the priest's job, you can also read this in Leviticus, to make sure that the animals that were offered met that standard. Because the people would bring the animals, it was the priests that would actually slaughter them and offer them on the altar on behalf of the people. So part of the priest's job was to make sure that the animals offered met the standard, and they weren't doing that. The people were actually bringing their blind and their lame and their sick animals, the ones they didn't really want anyway hey, this is great. I could kill two birds with one stone. Get rid of this stupid worthless animal and meet my religious obligation at the same time. It's wonderful. And the priests weren't stopping. And they were like, yeah, sure, bring the blind animal. We'll go ahead and offer that and pretend God is okay with it. How does God feel about this? Notice a couple of very strong statements as we move further into the story. He is disgusted by it and he is personally and deeply offended by it. There's a lot of very colorful and strong language in the book of Malachi. Look down at verse um, 10, for instance. Oh, that he says, he says that there were one among you, he's talking about the priests again, who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. Stop right there. This This is shocking. Do you realize what God is saying? He's like, guys, shut the doors, close the temple, just stop. I would rather see temple worship stop completely than continue on in this half-hearted, offensive manner that so disgusts me. It'd be better not to worship me at all, not that that's good, but it would be better not to even make a pretense of worshiping me than to say you're worshiping me, but actually Profane my name in this way. Lukewarm is not better than cold when it comes to an infinite being with infinite honor. Lukewarm is not better than cold. God would rather a church just shut down and go away, as important as churches are to Him. I believe He would rather see a church shut down and go away rather than carry on holding services with a bunch of people who are just going through motions checking off the church attendance box each weekend without ever perceiving God's worth, fearing God's power, or standing in awe of God's beauty. That's where worship comes from. He'd rather an individual person just stop pretending altogether to be a Christian than to continue living out a half-hearted spirituality that has a form of devotion to God but is not coming from a place of deep honor for God. His language is strong. He is disgusted by this half-hearted attempt, and he wants his people to see that objectively. He's also offended. If you drop down into chapter 2, the language gets even more colorful and more intense. Um, we're going to look at verse 3. Let's just back up to verse 1 so we catch the flow. Chapter 2, verse 1, now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you won't take to heart and honor my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send a curse upon you and will curse your blessings. Indeed, I've already cursed them because you do not lay this to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring. Now listen to this, and I will spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. Now, there's a little bit more Old Testament um, behind this that explains what he's talking about there. Back in Leviticus, you would sacrifice this animal, and of course it had entrails, it had a digestive tract with, can we be honest, it had poop in it. Okay, can we just say that, right? And that was considered a very offensive and unclean part of the animal. So there were very clear guidelines that, that you would take all the entrails away from the altar. And you actually go not only outside the, the temple, but you go outside the camp, and you would burn the certain unclean parts of the animal out there away from the people, and only the clean parts of the animal were supposed to be offered and sacrifice and what god is saying because to, to have to have dung to have poop on god's altar i mean come on this is the most sacred place where god's people met god back then and so you take that stuff away but god says what you guys are doing it's like you're just smearing animal poop all over the most sacred place where you meet me he says you wonder how offended i am about it how about i smear animal poop all over your face this is god talking <laughs> If my kids had talked like that when they were little, I'd say, No potty talk, cut that out. My like, God, no, but I can't tell you what to do. Okay, that's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. That's how deeply offended and disgusted he is. And he says, Just like the dung is supposed to be removed outside the camp and burned, you're going to just be removed right away. If you don't stop this, I will ultimately reject you from being my people. This is how God is affected by this half hearted worship. He's showing them their hearts, and their behaviors and how that looks objectively, how it looks to him because they don't see it. They thought they were doing well enough. They thought they were doing well enough so much so that in the first couple of disputations that we saw last Sunday, number one and six, like they were accusing God of failing to keep up his part of the bargain because they thought they were doing theirs. And God's like, oh, you are so wrong. You are so far beyond wrong. Let me show you what's really going on here how easy it is to delude ourselves about our own behavior, is it not? When it comes to evaluating me, I am probably the least objective person in the room. I cut myself way too much slack, often without even realizing it. How easy it is to think I'm doing just fine, to think I'm giving God his due when I'm really just tossing him my cold, withered, dried-out leftovers. Let's be honest about this, church. We serve God leftovers when we feel like we have no time or energy to read the Bible or pray. But oddly enough, if I go back through my day, I found plenty of time to look at blogs and social media and play games on my phone. Maybe that's not an issue for you, but I start with that one because it's an issue for me. Um, I have a couple personal rules. I don't mind telling you about how I use this thing. So I have a daily Bible reading plan. I use an app on my phone, and I really like it. It works well. But I got a lot of other stuff on my phone that's much more of a distraction. And so I've had to develop a personal rule that basically says this. I do my Bible reading in the mornings, and so my rule is I don't open a single app on my phone, nothing, until my Bible reading is done. That means no text messages. That means if emails came in overnight, I don't check them first. That means no looking at Facebook or social media, no playing a game, no reading blogs, not even the Christian blogs that are, you know, godly and they contribute to it. Nothing, right? That's my rule. Now, maybe you would never need a rule like that, and if that's you, good for you, I'm jealous, okay? But I'll be honest, like, I have to have that kind of a rule. Otherwise, I will fail almost every time. I'll get started on something, and pretty soon I'm 20, 30 minutes into whatever, and I realize, oh my gosh, look what time it is. I've got to go to work. And then maybe I get my Bible reading done, maybe not. Maybe I cram it in at lunchtime. And if I'm honest, I'm like, leisure is getting the first and best of my time. God's getting the leftovers. We serve God leftovers when sports and extracurricular activities for the kids and the family pull us away from regular participation in church life. I think we need to be honest this is a chronic epidemic issue for American evangelical churches today I don't believe we as a body are immune now and I'm, I'm saying that as a parent I have two kids I've raised them through the elementary years and and the teen years my kids have and continue to be involved in music and sports I mean I get the pressures that so many of these activities are putting on families today my wife and I have personally wrestled with those things with our kids but as hard as it is, it doesn't change the fact that sports are demanding first allegiance and so is God. And friends, if you're a Christian, you've got to decide who is going to get the first and who's going to get the leftovers. When my family and I first moved over to the west side of town and started um, being involved here at Harvest, my daughter was only eight years old and um, we would drive to church every Sunday morning past a big uh soccer field and they'd be setting up soccer games and you know there's all the kids warming up because it's early in the morning and all the parents staking out their chairs and their umbrellas like they're going to be there for like half the day or more and um it was just like you know part of the 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 scenery we hardly ever noticed it and one day I said to my daughter I said "Uh, do you see what they're doing out there she goes yeah I said what are they doing she looks at me and like they're playing soccer (laughs) right what are we doing she actually looked at me like, "Dad, are you feeling okay?" <laughs> it's a trick question. I said, "We're going to church." Yeah. I said, "Now you do this and that activity, right?" Yeah. I said, "What if you were on one of those soccer teams? What would your life look like?" And it was one of those great parenting moments. I've done a lot wrong as a parent, but this was one of those moments I still remember because, like, I could physically see the light dawning on her face. She was like, "Oh, I wouldn't be in church for probably like months." <laughs> I said, yeah, yeah. Is it wrong to have your kids play soccer? Of course not. But what's the priority? That's what God wants us to see here. It's so easy to essentially say, I'll invest in my local church as long as my kids' coaches and sports schedule allows for it. In other words, sports gets the first and best and God gets the leftovers. It's not very fun to look at ourselves this way, is it? But this is what God wants us to do. And it continues. The the next disputation is very similar. We'll move through this one a little bit more quickly. Uh, It's in chapter 3. And it has to do with not only the the offerings that these people were bringing, it has to do with the the financial tithing that they were, or in this case, weren't doing. Um, He says... I, the Lord, do not change, chapter 3, verse 6, and therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed, for from the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Then he says in chapter, in verse 7, there's a delicious irony here. He says, return to me, and I will return to you. Now, let's just pause there, because remember, Jordan mentioned last week that this book was written in what's called the post-exilic period. So the Israelites had been conquered by the ancient Babylonian empire. They had been hauled off to Babylon and many generations went by and then eventually the Persians conquered the Babylonians. And so now the Persians are ruling and under the Persian rule, several generations after having left the promised land, some of the Israelites were allowed to go back to Israel, and the the Babylonians had decimated the temple and destroyed it all, and they were allowed to kind of rebuild the temple and get the sacrifices going, and that's the group of people that, that this is written to. They were the returning exiles. They were returning to God. They were going back to the promised land. They were going back to the temple. They were going back to the sacrifices. They thought they were doing what God wanted. They were the returners, and what does God say to them? Return to me what? It's like my daughter looking at me in the car, like, God, are you feeling okay up there? Hello, who are you talking to, right? We're the returners. How how in the world could you say return to you? He says, good, I'm glad I've got your attention. Now I'll tell you how you need to return to me. Verse 8, will a man rob God, yet you are robbing me? What? You're almighty. How can a man, they say, rob God in your tithes and your contributions? They were giving partial offerings. They were donating some money to the temple service, but nowhere near as much as the Old Testament law commanded. There were essentially, uh, we don't have the time to go back and look at it all, but there were essentially two commands there. There was your basic tithe, a 10% that all the ancient Israelites were commanded to give so that um, the Levitical priests uh, could do their job and the temple could function. And then on top of that, there were various other uh, voluntary contributions or offerings that would take place over and above their 10% tithing to the temple to support other causes and other good things. That was all very clearly laid out in the Old Testament. They were clearly not doing that. They were giving some money, but not nearly enough. And by the way, I'm sure they had phenomenal excuses. Um, There was a famine in Israel at this time. Malachi itself, the book, makes that clear. God, we don't have very much to give. Like, we need this stuff to just live. Can, can we get away with giving you a little less for a while until things improve? They were also bond servants. I mean, these were generally not a wealthy group of people. They are um, laborers. They are under their um, Persian overlords who taxed them heavily. Um, these were not people that had a whole lot of wealth. And so I'm sure they could make a really good case as to why giving to the temple was probably somewhere further down in the pecking order than just like putting food on the table for my family and covering all the needs that I think we have, which always seem to be endless, no matter how much money you make. Isn't that weird? But God says, you're robbing me. (laughs) Return to me, because you're turning away. The point is that how we handle our money says a lot about where our hearts are really at with respect to God. How we handle our money says a lot about where our hearts are at with respect to God. We give God the leftovers regularly when we give far below biblical standards up to and including not at all. I'm a Christian, I love God. Maybe I even convince myself I want to give more but I have no plan for giving so it's kind of sporadic or, or I just give a little bit because I don't trust him and I'm unwilling to go through the difficulty of being without in order to love and honor God. God says, where's, where's your heart? What does that say about where your heart is? With respect to me. Oh, this is painful to say because I think of my own giving in my own heart. But God's shining the light on our hearts. We give God leftovers when we give based on net income rather than gross income. I tithe based on my take-home pay, not my actual pay, which is a way of saying, like, I'm going to pay Uncle Sam and my retirement plan and my health insurance company first, and then I'll give to God from the leftovers. God says, do you honor me in your hearts? And lastly, we often give God the leftovers financially. Um, when we take what we're giving to God and we cut it up into smaller and smaller pieces and spread it out thinner and thinner, taking away from giving to our local church and sending it to other causes. Boy, God nailed me on this one a few years ago. Amy and I have our planned giving that we do and always have done to our local church, but several years ago, um, there had been a big uprising in Kenya, in East Africa, and some of the poorest of the poor people in Kenya were the ones suffering the most, which is usually what happens. And I personally knew a ministry that was working in Kenya to help meet some of the needs there. And they kind of sent out an emergency like, hey, if you want to help fund this, there's a crisis need right now. And I just felt so compelled. I'm like, man, I feel like we got to do something. And I talked to Amy, and and she was very open to that too. And we're like, okay, what are we going to do? And then the temptation hits. Here's the problem. There was a month where I, I, I wanted to give more, but I didn't have any more to give. Just because I wanted to give it, nobody handed me extra money to give. And so immediately there was this temptation to say, I I know how we could fix this problem. What if I cut my giving to the church this month, just this month, in half? And put half there, and then took half and sent it off to Kenya. Oh, that would be great, because then I could help that cause, and I don't know, I mean, there's other people that give in my church. The church would probably be fine. The best part is nobody would ever know. And there was a moment in time where I was really pondering doing that, and the Lord just... I felt like he just nailed me. I was praying about it and I got convicted and I felt like, you know, that's not right. Is this a passion that you want to give to Kenya? Yeah, it's a passion. Well, how passionate is it? Passionate enough to take from the church to give to Kenya or passionate enough to take more from yourself? What if I ate rice and beans for a week and we banked the money we didn't spend on food and sent that to Kenya? Whoa, wait a minute. (laughs) That's too painful. I thought you said this was a passion. What we ended up doing was taking a little bit of money from a savings account that we had, which was not huge, and that was painful, and we gave it. And then we put ourselves on a plan for the next few months to spend less on other stuff so we could pay that savings account back, which was also painful. But what does my heart, what does my behavior say about my heart? He calls them out for not giving the full tithe. And in both of these things, the root issue is the heart. We've seen the disputations. Their sacrifices were deficient. Their offerings were incomplete. But in all of this, the language of the heart motivation is so strong. Have you picked that up even in the scripture we've read so far? The real root issue God is calling out here is their behavior emerged from and then also pointed to a heart that did not fully love and treasure God. Jump back to chapter 1 briefly. Look at verse 11. He says, from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. He's talking about eternity here. He's talking about heaven. He says, people from all tribes, tongues, and nations, all skin colors, all languages, all ethnic backgrounds are gonna be gathered together in eternity, worshiping me, and they're gonna love nothing more than they love me. Look how he continues to explain that. He says, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. He says, one day when sin is, is done away with, everybody will see me for who I am the best, the truest, the most beautiful, the most worthy, and the most desirable thing in the universe. And they will respond appropriately. Because when God's infinite glory is seen to be ultimately beautiful, that's heaven. That's heaven. But his people, who should have had an, a leg up on that, weren't treating him that way. Verse 12. But you profane my name when you say that the Lord's table is polluted. You say, verse 13, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. Yeah, he says, you guys are bringing these animals, you're doing the sacrifices, but it's all such a weariness. It's such a burden. I had to bring another animal to the temple. Are you kidding me? I said, if I don't have enough problems, i got to figure out how to deal with this issue now. And in their hearts, they're just like, what a burden. Has living for God become a weariness to you? Some of you probably, I've been talking for over 20 minutes now, you probably said, look, I figured this out right from the get-go. I'm not dumb. (laughs) Here comes another exhortation from a pastor to read my Bible more, right? To Pray more. To prioritize church attendance, to financially support the church. I see what this is. I get it. You know, could you shorten the sermon and just get it over with? <laughs> we often hear exhortations like the ones in Malachi as guilt fueled calls to do more and to try harder. And when we do, it becomes a weariness because illegalism will always wear you out in the end. When I'm just doing what I think I'm supposed to do, but my heart's not really in it, I can't keep doing that forever which is why God is both calling out their behavior and their heart. Friends, maybe you can relate to the painter I met this past week. I took some vacation time over Christmas and New Year's, and we had some work inside the house we were doing, and I hired a guy to come in and do a little bit of painting. And at one point, um, he'd put a coat of some stuff down, and, and he'd been working for a while, and he needed to wait until it dried, and so it was a good time for him to you know, take a break for 15 or 20 minutes, and now I'm, I'm home, I'm on vacation, and he's in somebody else's house, so he doesn't really have anywhere to take his break, so he headed out my front door, and I could tell he was just going to go like sit in his truck, which was parked in my driveway, for like 20 minutes, and do, I don't know what he was going to do, and you know, it was cold, and it was raining, and I thought, well, that's kind of lame. Now, I'm on vacation, and I'm kind of like in my me time, but I'm like, okay, go talk to the guy, maybe... Maybe God will bring something out of that conversation. Just give God a chance. I don't know. So I got myself up and I went and I kind of intercepted him on the porch and we started talking. Very friendly guy. So we just kind of get into conversation and it was a pretty easy conversation to stir in us, to to turn into a spiritual direction because part of his business name had a vaguely religious sounding term to it. So I said, oh, why'd you call your business that? And, um, oh, he kind of initially got a little uncomfortable, but then he sort of realized, oh, no, he goes, "Well, well, I'm a Christian. And I said, oh, that's great. So am I. I pastor a church. Oh, okay. And then so we start talking about it. So now I'm thinking, okay, he, he believes he's a Christian. I wonder what he really thinks about the gospel. So I just start asking him questions. How did you come to become a Christian? Like, what's your story? How did you uh, come to know Jesus? And he's telling me the gospel. He's quoting Bible verses and he's quoting them accurately. I'm like, wow, this is really great. I mean, this guy actually seems to understand that Jesus died for his sins, and he didn't deserve that, and that's the only reason he has freedom and an eternal future, and he's excited about it as he's telling me that. I'm like, hey, this is great, and so I was thinking, I don't know, Lord, maybe here's a guy who thinks he's a Christian, but he's never heard the gospel. Well, that doesn't sound like it, so I'm just thinking, okay, well, if there's anything else, God, that's here, great, let me know. Otherwise, we'll just have a conversation, and so eventually, he told me where he lived, uh, and I said, oh, I, I know a couple of pastors and churches not far from him. I wonder if he's a member of one of their churches. And so I said, oh, so do you, uh, where do you go to church out there? Oh, I don't go to church. Oh, tell me about that. (laughs) Well, well, I mean, I stopped going to church. And uh, long story short, he basically tells me that for years he'd been involved in various churches he said, Man, almost every day, seven days a week, I was doing something in church. I was attending a worship service. I was paying my tithes. That's his language, that's how he puts it. I was in a Bible study group. I was out serving the homeless, you know, and being involved in the community. I was doing everything. Almost every day, I was doing something with the church, and it was all just a burden. It was a weariness to him, to quote Malachi 1.13. And then he says, literally, this was almost a verbatim quote. He says, so I quit going to church, quit paying my tithes. Quit going to all the Bible studies. Ever since then, it's been great. He says, I really found that Jesus loves me despite my lack of performance, and I'm finding great freedom and joy in that. I don't ever want to go to church again. Churches are just full of pastors that tell you what to do and beat you over the head, like some of us have been feeling about Malachi. Great, come to my church. We're teaching on Malachi. No, I don't know. Maybe that's not a good idea. I don't know. Maybe that'd be great. And here's a guy, I finally realized, here's a guy who saw loving God and serving God as two completely opposite ends of a spectrum, right? And they're like oil and water, they don't mix. He had really found the gospel of grace and was excited about it, and I rejoiced over that, but he had come to associate the gospel with not being in church, not being with a community, not following and serving God. That will take you away from the gospel, so he thought. So I said to him, um, you still read your Bible? Think the Bible's God's word? Oh yeah, man, Bible's where we learn everything about God. I read my Bible every day. That's great. Um, I said, when you, when you read like John fourteen fifteen, where Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I said, what, what do you think that means? So you, you tell me, I'm just curious. What, what does that do for you? In the very next chapter where Jesus flips it around, he says, if you keep all of my commandments, you will abide in my love. Well, he had lots of reasons why he still believed that, but he could not go to church, and so it was okay. (laughs) And the conversation wrapped up, and he went back to work. But, you know, I thought, so often it's easy to see living for God and loving God as two completely different things. And I think if I'm just living for God, I'm actually loving him, and I'm not. Or, like this painter, I think I'm loving God, and I'm not living for him. You know, it's like he, he had two wings on an airplane and he had flown with this performance wing for so long and it didn't work, duh. And so now he switched over to the other wing. It's this grace and Jesus accepts me wing and I don't have to do any performance. And I'm thinking, friend, I don't want to get into any plane with you if it's only got one wing. I don't care which one it is. <laughs> I'm so glad I told him, you found the grace of Christ and that you are accepted by him out of love and you did nothing to earn. it. so true, praise God for that. But that spills over into a life of love. And service That's what God is bringing out in the book of Malachi. How does your behavior reflect your heart and what does your behavior say about your heart? Is God interested in us changing our behavior or is he interested in us changing our hearts? Yes. <laughs> yes, that's what this book is calling us to. And I think we actually know that intuitively and experientially. Um, I think of, you know, my beautiful wife, Amy, if it's our anniversary, and I come home with a, hey, honey, happy anniversary. Thought about getting you some flowers on the way home. Decided not to. Because you know what? Our love is real. It's deep. It's not just about stuff. I mean, who wants a relationship that's just all about what we do for each other? We're so much above that. I'm not even going to get you flowers. Don't you feel loved? Happy anniversary. goes for that. At least not if they want to stay married very long. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, you can flip that around the other way and say, oh, what if I get home? Oh, that's right. It's anniversary. I'm supposed to get flowers. All right, fine. Forgot. I'm out. I'm out. I'll I'll be right back. Go out, get some flowers. Come back. Here's some roses. They're kind of wilted, but that's because they were old and I got a great deal on them. Here you are, flowers. (laughs) Happy anniversary. I did it. Check. Performance. Feeling loved? Really? You love me so much that you can't go spend the time and money to do something for me? Is that a performance relationship? No. It's love expressed. Because you see, affection without action is just an empty sentimentality. It doesn't mean anything. The Bible way of saying that is faith without works is dead. It's the same thing. But you can flip that around too. Action without affections is just a dead legalism. It's just performance that has no heart in it and God is disgusted with it. Does he want our heart to change? Yes. Does he want our performance to change? Yeah. (laughs) Because a changed heart will lead to changed life. So what is the solution to all this? Well, I mentioned we're going to see it much more prominently over the next couple of weeks, but in our last couple of minutes together, before we respond together in communion, let me point back to chapter 1, verse 9. This is part of our text. It's it's just embedded in there. It's like a little drive-by shooting, you know? He's just calling them out for their bad behavior. And then quickly in verse 9, he says, now entreat the favor of the Lord that he may be gracious to us. And then he just goes right back into telling them how awful their behavior is. (laughs) It's just like out of the blue, there's this little boom, repent, God will have grace on you statement. And what that's pointing to is even in the middle of God just reaming these people out for their dead, empty, legalistic religion, he says there is hope. The hope is that I will be merciful to you if you repent. I think the ultimate takeaway comes back to the command Jesus gave us. Very clearly said, he's drawing it straight from the Old Testament, Mark chapter 12. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Can you command the affections of your heart? Yes, God does it all the time. Love God, that's something I'm supposed to do, but he makes it very clear. This is a whole person thing. Your feelings and your affections, your motivations, your desires, your lifestyle, your choices, all of this is how I love God. And so what Malachi is trying to get us to do as people is love God with all of our hearts. But of course, we very quickly run into the common theme of the Old Testament, of which Malachi is a part of telling the story. And the story is simply this. No matter how hard we try as people to love and serve God right, we don't have it in us to do it. God called them to repent, Malachi chapter 1, verse 9. They clearly didn't do it. It didn't matter. 400 years later, by the time Jesus shows up, most of the Israelites are still living for themselves and still just going through religious motions. We don't have the heart to repent. If we're going to ever love God rightly, we're gonna need a new heart. And that's exactly what he offers us in the gospel. In Ezekiel chapter 36, God tells his people, one day I'm gonna take out the heart of stone from your chest. It's like this dead, cold heart that you just don't love me and I'm gonna put a new heart in you, a heart of flesh that's alive and it's warm and it's beating and it loves me. That is a supernatural miracle that God works in our lives. And friends, if there is any one of us in this room, and I know there are many of us, who genuinely love God from the heart to whatever that is, extent that is true of you, it is a miracle of God. You and I had nothing to do with it. So what do we do? I want to suggest three things in closing. How repentance looks like. Learning to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength probably begins, not with a determination to do better, not with a determination to feel stronger about God. It begins with coming to Him, first of all, and simply acknowledging that He is right. Just don't do anything from it. Just stop deep breath. I say, God, you're right. You're right. My behavior in many quarters of my life points to a heart that does not fully love you, that does not see your infinite glory as ultimately valuable. So that's, that's on me. That's my failing. Secondly, ask him to, for his favor anyway and his forgiveness. I don't, I don't deserve it. You've got no reason to give it to me other than the fact that you're a loving God. And right now I'm hanging on to that because that's all I have So I'm just, I'm totally devastated. I bring nothing to the table. But I'm asking you to forgive me anyway. And then lastly, dare to pray that God would give us a heart to see his infinite worth as ultimately valuable. Dare to pray that he would kindle the affections of our hearts to love him more than anything. That's what we want to do this morning as we transition into a time of worship that will be led, first of all, by receiving communion and then by singing together corporately. Um, I want to ask uh, Draith and Kirk to come back up here to put some music in the background. Let me just say about communion here, what we're doing is following Jesus' command. We eat a piece of bread, we drink from the cup. It's a symbolic reminder, Jesus says, of his broken body and his shed blood on the cross. It's how we together as a church remember Christ crucified. And so as we come to the communion table this morning, let me say first and foremost, if you are not a Christian, if Jesus Christ is not your personal Lord and Savior, I want to encourage you when the communion elements come by, just let them pass by. Don't take them and that's totally fine because to take and eat these elements, you're saying, I'm a Christian and I've banked my whole life on Jesus. If you haven't yet committed your life to Christ, you can do that this morning. And you walk through the prayer that we're about to walk through here in just a moment. If that reflects your heart, then take communion. If you're a Christian, participate. If you're not, just let the communion elements pass by because we together are going to proclaim the excellency of Christ through communion. And so the way I want to do this, we're going to do it pretty similar to how we normally do it here at Harvest with just a couple of exceptions, a couple of little changes. Uh, as the ushers come forward j- in just a minute, um, they're going to pass out the bread, and I'm going to lead us through a corporate prayer Of confession that's a little different for us but I want to read some from Psalm 51 which is a confession psalm and then I'm simply going to use some words and invite you to speak them out loud in response to me if they reflect your heart if not then you can just stay quiet and listen but I'm going to lead us in a corporate prayer that sort of reflects these three points and then we will take the bread together. And then when the cup is being passed around, we're gonna give you a moment of quiet reflection to think about and let God do business with you before we take the cup together. So let me ask the ushers to come forward and get ready to distribute uh, the bread. In fact, go ahead and do that, ushers, as soon as you're in place.